What's going on, everybody? Welcome to Making the Turn, the premier green industry podcast that highlights professionals across many areas, including golf course management, sports turf, sales, business, education, landscaping, and more. Making the Turn is hosted by me, BJ Parker. I've spent nearly 25 years in the green industry, mostly as a golf course superintendent, and now I want to bring the knowledge and insight from myself and the many people I've met and continue to meet along the way. Making the Turn will provide valuable content for those looking to learn from others, gain useful tips and tricks, and be better in their daily lives. You can find Making the Turn on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Please be sure to rate, review, share, and subscribe. It helps keep the podcast growing and getting better. Thanks for listening, and welcome to another episode of the Making the Turn podcast. All right, everybody, welcome into another episode of Making the Turn. I'm your host, BJ Parker, and I, today I got with me a gentleman that I've known for a while. Love to finally get him to sit down with me and chat a little bit about the golf game. Mr. Virgil Herring, how you doing, sir? BJ, great to see you. I'm doing, I'm doing wonderful, thanks. I'm glad we I'm uh, I'm glad we got to uh do this. We uh we kidded the other day when we sat out around the uh, putting green talking for about an hour that I wish we would recorded it. So now we're here we are. <laughs> That's we're gonna, right. We're gonna do it all over again. Now we're gonna relive it. That's, That's right. right. That's perfect. So how's everything in your world? Tell me a little bit about what's going on with you and uh everything and uh Well, I, I'm a I'm a for a golf teacher, I'm an entrepreneurial spirit, yep. so to speak. So I know that my life is a golf, I'm a golf teacher. That's what I'm most noted for, and I I respect the fact that I put a lot of time and effort to right. be to be the the golf swing guy that people rely on. But I've I've just finished my second book, which was called Elevate, and I did that with former Vanderbilt star Drew Maddox, and that has been a and we had we had real good goals for the for the book, but we didn't maybe expect it to be number one right in for four straight weeks, and making the impact that it has. So that's been pretty cool. My own podcast, On the Verge, has been successful. I've been doing radio for now 18 years. Yeah. So I love the communication side. How, did the, how did the radio help with doing the podcast? Did that, did that it gave give you? A, it gave me a gigantic listenership up front. Because yeah. when I had to demonstrate my worth to West Haven Golf Club, yeah. um, maybe eight years ago, they needed to verify like what I'm bringing to the table. Right. So I didn't know what I brought to the table, and I asked them, the uh, people at 104.5. So I was getting about 7,800 live listens okay, and about another 6,000 downloads of right. the podcast later. Right. So that gave me about a 12,000 people in, in the Nash, Nashville area right. that are listening. So when you start... And I can cross-pollinate. I'm allowed to market my podcast on the radio show. And I'm okay. allowed to market, obviously, my podcast. I can say what I want. Yeah. I talk about my radio show and my podcast. Right. So the cross-pollination gives me a lot of help uh-huh. when it comes to getting started. I was, yep. you know, probably Drew Maddox was my fifth podcast. And right. that's had like 16,000 listens. Uh-huh. And that's actually been his, is because it's probably a little bit earlier, too. Right. Has a little bit more views than Eddie George. And Kerry Collins, the football players, that yeah. I also bring a lot to the table. But, you know, if I can get – I'm averaging about 6,000 downloads, and when I get a when I get a hot one, when I get an Eddie George, right. that's a game changer. Yeah. It's, you know, 12, 15,000, dramatic yeah. 15,000. So it's been uh, – that's cool. Golf Channel, obviously, 
TV. I think TV itself is trying to figure it out. So me being on the golf channel, I haven't been on in about a year. Right. Uh, but I have an extensive library of videos at thegolfchannel.com. And I've basically said everything that I would ever want to say uh-huh. on TV. Yep. They've been magnificent with me as in like, you just go. Right. We'll, 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 we'll follow your lead on that. That's been really cool. So me trying to have as many income streams as I possibly can, yep. knowing that seriously 75, at least 75% of what I do is really teaching golf. Right. But these other side projects keep me from getting burned out. Oh, for sure. On, for sure. on just standing there, yeah. fixing one swing after the other. What's, what was it like to write the book? Because that's something that I, having done this, it's something I want to I want to be in a different platform and written word is something that I sure. want to do. What was that like? So this is my second book. And the first one was a kind of, <clears throat> was me, yep. only me. And I just had this feeling of what I wanted to put out. Right. Like I, I'm, I'm a non-conventional thinker. Uh-huh. So I, I want my books to become your book. So they become interactive. My books are, I'm asking you to, log things and journal things so that my fundamentals or processes that I've learned to be great at whatever it is, certainly golf or playing golf or the swing, you can use the same fundamentals to make any part of a life better. Right. So I'm, I'm asking people to be interactive. So when I did the podcast with Drew, we got talking about how similar we are and how much we enjoy each other's company. And he said, man, I really want to write a book one day. And I'm like, well, it's not that hard. I mean, (laughs) You know, it's, what do you want to do? So I can get it done for you. He goes, yeah. well, he's, he didn't, because he, he didn't know. Right. I said, like, well, why don't we do one together? Kind of show you how easy it is. Let's pick 50 words that are synonymous with greatness, winning, perseverance, being a good teammate or coworker. And we wrote down those 50 words and we started writing. And he's very competitive. Obviously, right. you wouldn't expect somebody that's been as great as he was to not be competitive. Right. So we were, our, our initial goal was to be done writing the book in 50 days. Every day we're going to write a word of what it means to us, either as the player, the coach, or the observer. Okay. And so we started with one, and maybe by the fifth day he decided to do two, so then I did two, and then he went on vacation. He goes, uh, I, don't, I might not have Wi-Fi where I'm going, so then he writes seven, then I wrote seven, and then he wrote seven more, and I wrote seven. And we literally finished it in like 20 days. That's awesome. So we got it to our publisher, the publisher – ran into some walls with Amazon because Amazon, well, because it's a, it's a private um, publisher, not a McGraw-Hill or an Ingram sure. or something like that. Yeah. So we got punted backward over the holidays. So our book came out January 15th, uh-huh. and it has been a bizarrely raging success off of telling stories about what we've lived that were really fun and encouraging. Yeah. And that's what we're getting. And each it, it was designed, I didn't get this way, but it was designed to be us writing a page, only a page. Yeah. So it's a fast read. Like, I want to read about power today. What does power mean? And, you know, power in basketball, power in golf, and power in life. And we just write it so that Drew's definition or story is on one page. The next page you look at has my, and then there's a space on the back for you to write what it means to you. Gotcha. And all 50 words go that way. Now, some of them, the stories took longer than a page to write. Right. But at the end of the day, that's the premise of the book. Yeah. I know, you know, I'm, we, you and I have known each other as, uh, for a while now. And, and 
most of it became you as a golf coach and doing things. Um, I think you started out helping my dad. Yeah. That's how I even got introduced to you. But That's right. I've noticed your transition over time. It seems like you're moving into a place where you're you, – I know you're heavily involved with the kids over at Innsworth, but you're just wanting to coach and, and mentor and motivate. And, mm-hmm. and as we get older – that seems more important to me, and, and I see that as in, in you. Talk a little bit about how that transition came about. Whew. Okay, I would probably say it started with me being blessed with a lot of physical gifts. Yep. And a combination of no coaching, because my parents couldn't afford it. Not that they wouldn't have wanted to, they just couldn't afford it. And I have to pick some of it on myself. I could have done more, mm-hmm. but when I was doing it, I didn't know what that was. Sure. So as I got better at understanding why I wasn't as good as I should have been, I quickly turned from trying to be that guy yep. to being the coach to let other people who had the same kind of athletic ability, same kind of gifts, and no like, leadership. Right. I tried to be the guy who was the leader of that. Yep. So I wanted to make sure that my golf lessons, nobody ever got worse yeah. from from me. And then I realized quickly how much this game is mental, let alone life is mental, but golf is mental. Right. And how if you don't put in the good stuff, if you don't put in the words, the good self-talk words, because your brain's always listening. The black box is always on. For sure. And if you're not putting in good things, you're putting in bad things. There's no middle things. Right. The more I started to understand what that was for me, the more addictive it became. Because not only was I where I have it was I having success helping others. Right. Well, while I was helping others, I was helping myself. Yep. And it became a self fulfilling cup filler. Right. Where I kept the more I gave, the more I got. Almost like a pay it forward mentality, but that's what has st- that started early in my career, and now it is something that it really motivates me because I'm in a different world now that I coach a high school. Yeah, I never would have thought that I'd be doing what I'm doing today. Yeah, and it probably wouldn't even been a doable situation even three years ago or four years ago. But with the technology that we have, that makes the the track man makes the ball capture so good yep. in a short. We have this amazing facility at Ensworth. And, but it wouldn't have been very good four years ago. Now it's unbelievable. So it allows me to coach these kids in a way that is so much better. Okay. So like, think about it. And Steph, I did a playing lesson because playing the game is really important to me. I'm, most people think that I'm a swing nut and a swing guru, but I'm really into a functional circle that allows you a predictable ball flight and distance so that we can play the game with enjoyment. Mm-hmm. So when I do playing lessons now, I can literally do an 18-hole playing lesson on some of the greatest golf courses in the world. <laughs> we never move. Every shot you hit rolls right back to your feet. It takes an hour. We can do the decade system, course management system that Scott Foss came up with, where I can tell them exactly where we're going to aim, why we're going to aim it there, understand shot patterns, and these kids will just eat it up. Right. I mean, the technology is great. Now, keep in mind that I have an abnormally talented high school golf team. Right. I mean, we're probably, we'd probably be ranked in, like, 80th in the country as a college team. Okay. Yeah. Okay. We're loaded, and I know that, and I was like, I, I started coaching rounding <laughs> third base. There you go. So to speak. But it's a beautiful thing, and it's it's a different enough 
for those 12 hours a week, 15 hours a week in the in season yeah. where I'm coaching these kids and it's a group coach think tank, not a one-on-one. So I'm still doing what I do, but I'm doing it in a very different way and that really fills up my cup. Yeah. How is the coaching the kids different from one-on-one teaching just other individuals? Is that completely different? Obviously yeah, it, it is. is it is. It's really different. Like Bowers told me, and Coach Bowers is Ricky Bowers is the athletic director at Ensworth. Yep. Uh, he's one of the greatest human beings, if not the greatest human being I've ever been around. And he uh, he says, I want you to listen to me, son. This is going to be different than anything you've ever done before. Because when you get 14 teenagers together, they think it's a group collective. When you're dealing with these kids one-on-one, you're yep. dealing with the son or the daughter. Uh-huh. But when they get all together, they're like a pack of wolves. They think differently <laughs> all together. And I didn't know that. I mean, I thought, well, I've been teaching these kids for so long. They're all going to be, uh-uh. Well, how, I, how the individual reacted when I was working with them was unbelievably different than how they acted as a whole. I can see that. Um, more apt to be feisty, more apt to disobey what I have to say right. in a group, more apt to say yes and do no, more apt to say no and do yes. Yeah. Um, that was challenging because I had to, like I tell people all the time, sometimes I have to be Oprah Winfrey and sometimes I have to be Dr. Phil. I like being Oprah. I like being the encourager, the guy who puts his arm around you and tells you how much I love you, care for you, want you to be great. I don't enjoy being Dr. Phil and getting in your can. Yeah. But if I have to put my Dr. Phil hat on, I will. And you will also know it'll have a different level of volume to it than a normal Dr. Phil because I hate being Dr. Phil. So you'll know that you've crossed into my Dr. Phil world <laughs> because of the volume may be cranked up a little bit. Yep. And I'm not able to coach you the way I like to be coached, like to be coaching. Yep. I now have to be somebody that I don't like to be. And they've gotten to be pretty good. And obviously it helps when, you're, when they're driven to be great, because they are. They all have very big dreams. But learning how to coach a golf team, I learned the hard way, which is there's n- I've only ever seen one scenario in which what was best for the team was not best for the player. And it's hard for me to get these kids that are they're so used to thinking about themselves. Right. That I'm like, listen, uh, Julian – the decision that you're getting ready to make on this par five to go for it in two from 270, water on the right, you can hit that shot. And I need you to know that I believe that you can hit that shot. But just know that if it doesn't work out, not only are you hurting yourself because you're going to make a boat or worse, but you're also hurting four other guys. And your play not only represents you, but it represents Ensworth. And it's hard for those kids to make those decisions because they're mm-hmm. so used to thinking of it in a selfish, in a good selfish way. I would think would you think that would make them deter them from taking the shot, though, in almost every situation, if you put it that way? Yes, especially the one that doesn't make any sense. Yeah. So I'm always like, I'm trying to tell a perfect example. It's like what we did on the first day of the state championship would be very different than what we did with the last three holes of the state championship, knowing where we were. Right. You cannot win a golf tournament in the first day, but you can lose it the first day. Sure. So we came down the stretch, and we were winning by 14 with nine holes to play. And literally by the time I was done doing my interview with the Tennessean, Julian, my number one player, was on the third hole at, at um, Willowbrook, which is the 12th hole of the tournament. 
and we went from 14 up to six up in like a blink. I'm like, so I go to this, the virtual scoring app, and I'm like, who am I going to drive out to kill because they've made a stupid mistake? And we were even par. So I'm looking at it, NBA had, you know, made a bunch of eagles on the second hole, and three of them birdied the first hole, and they cut the lead. And slowly but surely, they cut it down to two, then one, and then they tied us yeah. with three groups on the course. Now when we make decisions, we're making decisions to win Everybody wants to win, and everybody's willing to forgive somebody going for something, and it doesn't work out yep. to win with two holes, one hole to play. Yeah, nobody's willing to forgive the mistake. Hole three, being greedy and being selfish as an individual, not for the team, and it knocks us out before right. we even have a chance. Yeah. So we were fortunate in the decision-making processes because NBA had to play first. We didn't have to make those decisions. The hard decisions to make the bad or the more aggressive play, mm -hmm. the more risky play, fell on the NBA players. And it ended up being all we needed for us to continue to do what we've been doing. Right. So we were able to play the smart shots because whether it was because Julian hit his tee shot further, he didn't play the last. Or Hudson hit it further than his guy. Or they made a lower score coming into the par three, and they had to go for the flag stick, and because that's what what ended up happening is that the <coughs> excuse me the seventeenth hole of our tournament was a par three. Mm -hmm. Well, the sixteenth hole, all the NBA guys teed off first going into seventeen because they either had a birdie or maintained their honor. Right. So they were forced to take on the flag. Yep. Hit it in a bad spot and allowed my guys to play to thirty feet and two putt for par, and then the pressure shifted, and that's how we ended up winning by two. Yeah was just circumstances. Who knows what would have happened if my guys had to play first, knowing we were tied. Yep. They may have. I would imagine, that, especially the kids that, I'm, that were up at the top, they're the best players who like the moment. Yeah. And they would have taken on the flag. Maybe they would have hit a great shot. Maybe they would. We will never know that. But we were the beneficiaries of being able to watch first. Yep. And that was really cool. So, like, the, the coaching the team is a it's fun because it's very different. I can almost see how I would enjoy college coaching as well. Yeah. Because college, you can at least interact with players in a tournament. I can't even talk to the high school kid. Oh, really? On the golf course. Yeah. Um, but I had to watch. Yeah. And it was nice to see how much coaching between my staff of Pat Sellers, Butch Rhodes, and myself were able to impact these kids prior to the event. Yeah. That they were really locked in. But uh, coaching a team is very different than coaching individuals. Yeah, I see how you light up with the, the the team and how they interacted and some of the coaching philosophies that you have. What's it like coaching a team to win a championship, knowing that you've sort of put them in that position to think the way they they're doing, uh, versus maybe playing in a tournament where you're 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 going through all that. Is mm -hmm. that is that make sense to you? Yeah, well, that's a that's a really interesting statement. Okay, so as you as we get older, yeah, we're trying to figure out what we're going to leave behind. Right. Not that I'm so old that I'm already. Like concerned You're probably about younger legacy. than me, son. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm a 46. So when, I, when I'm yeah, thinking, yeah, I got you about one. Yeah. So what I'm thinking is, when I took the job at Ensworth, I felt like it was an opportunity for me to leave a legacy. You hear that a lot of impacting so many kids from a school. Yep. That it leaves a mark on the school. So we've never won a state championship at Ensworth. For the boys, the girls won one, 
in 2014 or 13, but the guys have never won one. And the pressure at a school like Ensworth, with as many great golfers as they've had, right. to not have won a state championship, it starts to become a backpack, yep. like a 500-pound backpack. And the thing that I'm most proud of for the guys, but knowing that my staff was unbelievable too, Pat and Butch were amazing, was that we worked so hard to get them out of thinking about the pressure and the expectations to win. Yeah. And we got them into thinking about what a champion thinks like. And one of my big mantras is, is that if, if we're not going to win, we are going to shake the hands of the people that played better than us. We are not going to have to look in the mirror to see who beat us. Yeah. And we convinced them. That's good. We convinced them that they were good enough. The game plan is good enough. And they're good enough to follow it that we will win. Right. And if we don't win, we're going to be able to shake the hands of the people that beat us. We will have a front row seat to what we got to do to be better tomorrow. Yeah. But we cannot stand one more time hitting a ball out of bounds on the 16th hole at Willowbrook, that par five that's got, and it looks like a bowling alley you're hitting down. We can't do that and have to look in the mirror the whole way home of why we're holding a silver trophy and not a gold right? because of stupidity or, or ego or poor decision-making. Now I feel like I've made an impact on these kids on how they think, yep. and now they're, it's, it's, they're delivering it on an individual basis. Yeah. And if that's what I get a chance to leave is one state championship, breaking the ice mm -hmm. to maybe we win a bunch. Who knows? But like as as we're currently experiencing in the pandemic, what we consider what we considered normal is dead, right? And we're somewhere between we're in this little purgatory right now of the old normal is dead, and we don't know quite know what the new normal is. Yep. So like that's where I'm at right now with the team is like I'm trying to build a legacy on what it takes to be a great golfer and a great teammate in golf. How that is eerily similar in a business world. And what it takes to be great in business and what it takes to be great in golf are almost exactly the same. Risk management. Yep. How you deal with others. All of those things play a huge role, and they get a chance to use golf as a teenager as a proving ground for their processes to be great at something in life, yep. whether it's golf or business. And that's what I want to pass on. And yeah. that's, that's I take that extremely serious. Yeah. And I almost feel like the messages that I get from the parents and the kids. Yeah is that maybe I'm doing a bigger job coaching them in life than I am in golf, even though I'm actually using golf as my narrative. Yeah, well, you got to have a commonality that kind of puts you all together. Yeah. And the more you can give kids, because they have other people in their life they look up to, but not only are you coaching them about golf, you can also give them things about life that will help them get better. And yeah. even though they're not your kids, they're, they are your kids in a sense. Yeah. And that's, that's important in – and no matter what legacy you leave behind, that to me, look, I just see it in you that looks like that's really been something that's been uh, life-changing for you and something you're really passionate about. No doubt. And I would almost say that people ask me all the time, I can't believe you're coaching a high school. And I'm like, well, I am probably would tell you the same thing five <laughs> years ago. But I knew that I love to impact kids' lives. Right. And now instead of doing it one at a time, I get to do it. You know, right now, 21 at a 
out. Right. And which is really fun. Yeah. How do you take all of this and put it into what you do with the podcast that you do? Because you and I are kind of in the same industry in a lot of ways, but I know your podcast, you don't talk a, t- a ton about golf. You may intermingle it a little bit, and and but most of yours is geared towards getting to know the person, kind of like what I do. Mm-hmm. Like I, you know, my audience is more in the turf side and the green industry side, and we may touch a little bit on that before we're done talking today, but yeah. I just enjoy this interaction right here. So talk a little bit about all the things that you sort of philosophize about, uh, deal with, with coaching and teaching, and put that into the podcast. <laughs> I openly say that I'm, I'm, I don't know a lot about a lot of things, but I do know a, a large amount about golf, yep. a large amount about mental performance, rock and roll, especially Tool and Pearl Jam, and Guns N' Roses. I know a lot <laughs> about red wine. I've studied music golf, sports, and yeah. wine with a deep passion. And they happen to be things that a lot of people like to talk about. Sure. So what I do is I try to bring people in that are, you know, obviously Eddie George, you get the NFL players, that's a big deal. You yeah. get a PGA Tour player, that's a big deal. But I also get some CEOs and some sports psychologists and some therapist and things like that. I'm very interested in the mental side of life. Right. And how you can use that big battery pack sitting on top of your shoulders to best perform for you. Because really most people right now, there's a large amount of people who their brain is working against them. Yeah. And most of them don't even realize. So I try to tell stories about somebody's successes I, all of my podcasts have a have a have a, a mode. I bring them up. I interview them up to what what makes them awesome. Right. And then I I bring them way down. Talk to us about the worst moment of your life and how you pulled through it. Yeah. Because perseverance and the the ability to move past pain is a challenge for everybody. But the ones that you you read about it and you hear about it, but when you have to face it yourself, man, it's hard. Yeah. It's hard, and what I try to do is I try to tell these stories that people are hearing about how awesome Eddie George is, and then Eddie tells you his doomsday saga. Yeah. And you're like, man, if Eddie George can overcome that, buddy, I can overcome this. Oh, yeah. And they they give their secrets away, Mm -hmm. and that's what I'm there for. I'm there to pass on my love of music, golf, sports, wine, concerts, togetherness, and the, the, the human brain and yeah. the power of the brain. And I try to take people on a journey with my guests yep. up, down, and back up again. And then talk about things that they love to humanize them a little bit. And I call like, oh, that guy loves Pearl Jam. Well, that guy loves Dave Matthews Band. Or yeah. This guy loves George Strait. And now that guy has a new fan because he didn't know yeah. that they were, they had something in common. And when you start bringing people together, that's power, you know, and I, I, and I, I believe that what, what I'm maybe s- submersively sneaking up on it, which I don't even know that I'm doing, is that I'm trying to be a leader of bringing human connection back together again because we could not be any further disconnected oh. in the world than we are right now. Yeah. And what I'm learning is that people are starving for, but they're so worried about, 
what happens on social media, like where you try to bring people together and all of a sudden you just get bashed into the dirt. Right. But I try to create an environment that people can talk and there's no reaction. You can't like interact with my podcast, so right. to speak. So then they, they get a chance to pass on their message and people are forced to listen to it and they get something out of it. And that's what I'm sensing is occurring. And I'm, I'm very passionate about that particular piece in life. And that's, you know, I love what I do because every time I'm doing that podcast, I'm learning probably more than that other guy's learning. Yeah. I tell you, um, I started this podcast in a moment when I felt like, you know, it was a, a way to get back and reconnect. But the thing that I learned about it was is that everybody had a story to tell, and I needed to bring that out in the people because yeah. I will tell my story along the way. But the idea of interacting and building content and giving someone a voice, because I can sit here and talk shop with a superintendent or a salesperson all day long, but I want to know that person. I want to know that individual. And mm -hmm. I think that's what's cool about what you're doing and is you're getting – you know, the same the same type of thing on a different level. I mean, I'm trying to get there, but, you know, to have like Eddie George who talks about things you would never uh, hear him talk about or, you know, the, the uh, any, you know Drew and all the different guests that you have, it's like you get to know them on a personal level. Same people with my guests. Yeah. They, two people may have never met, and they say, I heard you, I heard you on BJ's podcast, and I, I, I want to know more about this or whatever. And, 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 and I see that, and, and, and it's just – trying to connect all the different people in this business together. And this medium right here is something that I've found highly effective and, and I'm enjoying it. And, and, you know, I, I can sit down and talk to anybody for hours. Well, and not only that, but like you can sense that I'm sure that you're feeling it too. It's like, man, it fills up your cup too, mm -hmm. because we're all, we're all dying for connection. Yep. And even if you have a thousand people you connect with, yeah, we're always looking for a thousand and one, yep. thousand and two. We're always looking because, man, is it powerful to be able to go places by yourself and people there know you and recognize you, and they yep. they they bring you into wherever arena you're at, whether it be at work or on a golf course, sure. or you know, you go over to the Toro place and you're like, oh man, great podcast the other day with uh, John. You know, I, uh, tell me a little bit about this, yep. what you guys are doing there, because I never heard that before. Those kind of things let people let you know that what you're doing matters. That's important to you. It lets the people that you interview know, hey, this matters. Yep. I matter. Wow, this is cool. How can that not be positive? And as long as and I and I know totally what agree. I know what you're doing, I man. What you're doing is is positive, man. You're not doing anything negative. The more positive things you put out, the more positive things that come back. And that's it's 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 a constant cycle. The more good you put out the more good that comes back to you. And then the more you put out, the more yep. it just keeps coming. It's a cycle yeah. that we want to facilitate because we know what the other side is like. We know what pain and suffering feels like, and we don't, we're going to face it. Yep. But we don't want to have to suffer more than we have to. Right. We want to bring as much great into people's lives as we can, and that's what I applaud you for. It's great. I tell people this story all the time, and I, I may have mentioned on a, on several of my podcasts, but it, this doing this is the one thing that – gets me motivated the most to get out of bed and it's the thing i don't get paid to do at all i know and i, I mean i've i've just recently you know had a, a sponsor you know give me some money and, yeah. and and i appreciate that and but i never started it with even that in thought in mind and and as i've as i've grown it i'm like this is what i love to do i'm gonna figure out how to make this work yeah and along the way i'll make money doing what i do and enjoy but i you're right i mean i I don't do it necessarily for me. I do it for the connection, but uh, but this is what I 
enjoy when I whenever I have one scheduled or whenever I'm you know I'm just like get excited I'm, about I'm it. super excited about it and and I and I'm just excited about the thought of sitting down and connecting with someone recording that for all time and for people to listen to for so maybe one person gets something out of it and that's, that's exactly. all that's all that matters to that's me. right because if you impact one person's lives you've yep. actually changed the world yeah what um so you've you've done a bunch in your career and and I'd love to dive in a little bit if you want to talk a little bit about us of coaching guys on the PGA tour sure. I know you coached Brant and I think people uh, that listen to this would love to hear sort of some stories around that and how that went and uh, so talk a little bit about it about being out on the big time uh, coaching and uh, you know your time with Brant and others yeah so it's interesting my my, Brant my, Snedeker, by my, yeah, my teaching career has almost been in reverse in which most of the greatest teachers that you've ever heard about butch Harmon, david ledbetter you know jim mcclain rick yeah. smith okay most of those guys reached their superstardom in their 40s and 50s yep i taught a tour winner when i was 26 garrett willis and then i taught multiple usga champions which the biggest one of those being brant right winning the public links then playing in the masters so I'm, all, I'm doing all this before I'm 30. And then I, I stopped working on the tour, and I worked with a lot of college players. And now I've shifted out of college, and I'm going in reverse. A lot of people cut their teeth on the beginning of the game <laughs> right. and work their way to the tour. Right. I started at the tour and worked my way to the beginning of the game. Working with tour players, like the things that I miss about the tour players is there's a fraternity of knowledge out there that most people will never gather and what I mean by that is, is that you learn how to hit shots out there that you don't learn on the driving range or even with your buddies. Yeah. There are shots that the best players in the world figured out how to hit while they were so nervous they couldn't hit their face with a glass of water. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So when you when you listen, like, so Brant played a practice round with Tom Watson at the Masters. And that was Brant's idol was Tom Watson. And Tom's like, what are you going to do if you have to hit a driver here and the wind's blowing in your face 30 miles per hour and you got to – you got to keep it down, but you still got to hit driver. You can't hit three. Well, you got to hit driver. What are you going to do? Brand gave him that, uh, don't know. He goes, well, here's what we're going to do. You're going to tee it up a little higher, but you could, like, Brand's like, what? You're going to choke up on it two inches. That's going to make the shaft really stiff. It's going to bring the center, I mean, that's going to bring the kick point a little higher to your hands. It's going to bring the ball flight down. You're just going to have all the forgiveness of the driver head, and you're going to be able to keep it way down. So when I when I watched him hit that shot, it literally came out thirty percent as high, and went like two seventy, which is what he needed. Right. Brent's like, where do you ever get that knowledge? That's not in any book anywhere. <laughs> I'd never heard of it. To watch Sevy hit bunker shots with a five iron. Like what? Yeah. How, I mean, he's hitting shots with a five iron that would make almost everybody there blush with a lob wedge. Yeah. And watch how his hands work. Like, those are the things that you miss. Working with Brant was very unique because Brant had an... The thing that makes Brant different is his attitude. Like, Brant, no matter how bad he's hitting it, yep. Brant believes that whenever he has to hit a shot, he's going to hit it. Even if he hasn't done it all day, every shot he sets up to it, thinking, this is the one. Mm-hmm. And, and very similar, like the first time I ever heard this was I was reading a book about a former 
basketball great David Thompson, and then it trickled down into Dr. J and Michael Jordan and et cetera, is that when they were three for 22 after three periods, they didn't shy away saying, tonight's not my night. They went to the bench heading, you know, at the end of the third quarter saying, get me the damn ball because I cannot keep being three for 22. Yeah. The laws of percentages stating that it's going to start to leave. I'm going to go 13 for 13 in the fourth quarter. And how many times did Michael Jordan score 25 in the fourth? Oh, for real. Like, um, no like so many times. Yep. I did not have – that was one of the things I learned about myself through Brandt. I was one of those guys that if I didn't get off to a good start, today's not my day, let's just get through this, and tomorrow being a better day. Brandt was like, whatever. I'm going to shoot five under today with nothing. I'm going to crush these fools because they think – they look how bad I'm hitting it, and I am still going to shoot lower than they are. Because I'm going to figure out how <clears throat> to slap it around and still win. I'm like, man, I have never thought like that. So this is my favorite story to tell about Brant. <clears throat> he was the number one player in college golf at this time. <clears throat> I just had a right here with I just, allergies. I had a pollen, <laughs> a pollen sandwich. Uh, so we're we're playing in this tournament. It's in the book. I've talked about it on my on elevated the book. Talked about it so many times in podcasts and written. But it's a, such a really important story. We were winning a golf tournament after day one by six shots. And he decided that night that it was going to be a good idea to go out with the fraternity brothers and have a good time. So with about four minutes left to our tee time, he wasn't there yet. And if it was in the clearly, clearly stated in the rules that if one guy doesn't show up, you cannot play and represent your team as yourself. So with one minute left... He comes lollygagging up to the tee, notably hurt. Right. Notably hurt. So I'm furious because I've paid for us to be in this tournament. We're winning, and I didn't get the respect that I thought, right? So I hook my tee shot on one. I am boiling mad, and he hits a shot way to the right, too. We're basically side-by-side side in the trees. And he, he, he looks at me and goes, what are you going to do, coach? And I'm so mad at this particular point that I can't even really see straight. And I'm like, I don't know, Sneds, what are you going to do? He goes, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take this seven iron, and I'm going to chip it out underneath these trees in front of the green, and then I'm going to chip it in for birdie, and we're going to roll these fools before that even starts because they think right now they're going to get a two-shot swing, and actually they're going to they're lose a shot. And I look at him, I'm like, <laughs> is that what you're really thinking? And he looked right back at me as if I was the craziest person in the world. He's like, Yeah. What are you thinking? I'm like, I'm not thinking that. <laughs> and literally, he chipped his seven iron out underneath the trees out in front of the green, and then he chipped it in just exactly as he said he would. Both the guys that were playing with us hit it to eight feet and seven feet. They both missed their birdie putt. We ended up gaining a shot when it looked absolutely for sure that they were going to beat us on that yeah. hole. And I learned the power of the, mo the momentum switch. Right. He thrives on that, which is he knows that he's not going to be one of the best ball strikers ever. He knows that his gift is that freaking putter is so repulsively hot. Yeah. And he's a great wedge player, like top five wedge player in the world. Yep. And when his putting is on, he's the greatest distance putter ever. I don't care what anybody, even I know Jordan Spieth is really, really good too. Yeah. Nobody makes bombs like Snedeker makes bombs. When he gets on, it is literally the most incredible thing you've ever seen in your life, and it makes you sick if you've not made a bunch of putts in your life. Yep. He's like, I can beat you without hitting it good, but if I hit it good, you all are dead. Yeah. 
and that's what's happened to him. When he wins, he has a abnormally good ball hitting week yep. to go along with the repulsively smoking hot putter and wedge play that he has. And he he gets suckered in like every other tour player does to f- the mirage of feeling you're going to become a ball striker. But you have to somehow fall in love with what God gave you yep. and just chip away at your weaknesses. And he's, like I said, he's from 50 yards and in, I'd put he, Seve, Tiger, Phil, Luke Donald, Brian Gay, and a handful of others that I'm sure I'm forgetting. Right. But those are the elite from 50 yards and in, and certainly Tiger would be, has to be considered the best because he's the best of all of them yeah. with his record. And there was a time in which his up and down game was so repulsively good that it was not fair. Right. Think about this, Beach. Three different times in Tiger's career, the difference between Tiger's up and down percentage and the number two guy on tour was greater than the number two guy and the worst player on the tour. Think about that. <laughs> At the top, it was so much <laughs> That's higher. almost hard to wrap your mind around. Yes. And, like, to me, people want to know, like, why was he so good? He was the greatest at everything. For a window of time, from 2000 to 2000, early three, maybe 2003, he drove it better than everybody, ironed it better than everybody, pitched it better than everybody, putted it better than everybody. There wasn't a part of his game. He wasn't head, shoulders, and mid-chest above Ernie, Phil, and Duvall, and, you know, Vijay Singh. Did you ever get a chance, or did you ever get a feel behind the scenes of what the other tour players felt like when they were playing with Tiger? Yes. Like hopelessness. Yeah. Like there were, I mean, multiple times. So I'd be like, this is, uh, we're playing for a second. Who's going to win the B flight? Right. And it was, it was so humbling because how many times did Tiger win hitting it literally terrible? A lot. A lot. Yeah. Nobody else could do that. Yeah. Like when, I mean, Duvall had a nice run. And I would say the only person that I can think of that rivaled Tiger head to head from tee to putt was that little window of time that David Duvall took took over number one from Tiger twice. Yep. Because David drove it better than Tiger. But maybe not quite as long, <clears throat> but almost as long and radically straighter. And he had a window of time that he had his irons as good as Johnny Miller as well. He was a great putter, but he didn't have the sh- quite the short game that Tiger had because that, that strong grip shut face limited him on the quality of shots that he could play. Right. But he was he was the only person that I felt like when when healthy gave Tiger all he wanted in a bag of chips, but still he wasn't as wasn't as good as Tiger. But I remember Brant feeling like, how am I ever gonna beat this guy? Because my advantage really is good as I am at it. And he can hit it way longer than me. He's got all the shots. Right. And I'm like, Brant, one of the things I tried to pass on to him is stop trying to be Tiger. Start trying to be the best brand. Okay, so you're not going to be as dominant. But one of the things to remember about being on the PGA Tour is it's one hell of a life. And if you can figure out how to stay out there for 20, 25 years, yeah. that's a great profession. Oh, for sure. <clears throat> Do not feel like you're a failure because you don't have 14 majors, let alone any major. Brand doesn't have a major. Yeah. But if he looks at his career as anything else other than radical success – he needs to be slapped. Yeah. Because it has been an unbelievably successful uh, career for Brandt, among others. Uh, <clears throat> but, uh, but that's what I try to pass on. Speaking of, like, tour, 
what it's like on tour. It's not easy. And I don't want to I don't want to paint it as it is. Hank Haney's book, The Big Miss, I thought was one of the best books I've ever read, even though it kind of breaks a code, a bro code. Right. Of telling stories that you shouldn't be telling because they were you were confided in. Right. But that's what it's like. Yeah. It is a generally speaking, a thankless job in which when the player plays good, the player takes the credit that they deserve. Mm-hmm. And when they don't play good, well, crap rolls downhill and it lands no on the doubt. teacher. It no lands doubt. on the teacher. Um, <clears throat> I think it's important for the people out there to understand that to be a great PGA Tour player, the level of selfishness that is required in the person to survive in an arena where the only people that are rooting for you is you. Yep. And you have to be your own biggest fan. <clears throat> That quality oftentimes does not resonate well at a kitchen table, but it is essential in that world. Yeah. And when we look at our heroes struggle in the real world, it's hard to imagine how different your mindset has to be to coexist with eight others versus just you, your caddy, and the golf course trying to win a golf tournament. Yep. It has to be all about you all the time and in a very positive outlook to make it out there. And that is very different. So the people who become great people on top of being great golfers, those are the guys that need to be applauded. Yeah. Like what Tiger has become in the aftermath of his fall is worthy of note because now he's a mentor to many. Yep. The guys look up to him. He gives back information unbelievably i can't wait for it to hit the actual airwaves instead of just between the guys the switch the his switch has been impressive yeah i mean he used to i mean he would put his throat on you and and push harder i mean he wanted to just beat you into submission all the time and now it's like he still has that desire yeah but it's just a total i mean it's almost if he gets the whole thing it's really kind of scary yeah where he could go with this in the next you know four he's probably only got a window of a couple of years four or five maybe yeah it's interesting i think that this this break right now that we're forced in with the covid19 benefits him more than anybody oh yeah because his he gets to you know he needs this time without the pressure of events going by right like why isn't tiger playing like i can't imagine how much he has to endure when you're playing again, when you're playing again, when you're playing again, when you're playing again, how's your back? How are you healthy? I, God, he didn't even imagine. So, like, now this forced shutdown. He doesn't even have to play another round of golf if he doesn't want to. I know right. he wants to. Oh, yeah. But, you know, you're right. I mean, it's like this is perfect for him. Yeah. I think that he's a right now he's taking the rising tide raises all boats mentality. It's a good way to put it. And he is rising, he's raising the tide so that all the other great players elevate. Like he has taken under a person I think has really done, Jason Day. I think his back is toast. And he's probably being the second greatest benefited person from this. Right. Rory, uh, Kepka, all these guys that Sir Justin Thomas, Ricky Fowler, all of those guys, Tiger, he they're like he they're talking to Tiger all right. the time. They are standing to benefit. From his knowledge. But at the end of the day, what we are all searching for more of, we won't get it. We'll get maybe one or two more. 
the Masters in 19 was as good of an event for us to watch in so many different levels. Because even though McElroy didn't really have a chance to win, he finished like seventh, I think. Yeah. Molinari <clears throat> looked like he was going to beat the world ever since he had the Open Championship won. He had a chance to win everything that he played in going up to that event. <clears throat> Brooks Kepka is the closest thing to the Terminator, Tiger Terminator, as we've seen since Tiger. And Tony Finau is a great, ta- great talent. All these great names were at the top especially the ones that Tiger's been mentoring and helping. Sure. And he beat them. Yep. Some of them made the mistake of hitting the water on 12 by hitting a bad shot like Molinari hit a bad shot. Kepka and Finau got the wrong side of the wind. They hit good shots that fell in the water. But Molinari did not hit a good shot. Kepka did. Yep. Finau did. They hit the wrong shot. And Tiger was benefited by hitting a, a come-over pull that didn't fade. So he hit a pull, landed in the middle of the green, and... I can tell you that he was aiming at the middle of the green, hoping that it would fade, and he ended up aiming at the middle of the green and hit about a nine-foot pull. <laughs> but it didn't go in the water, and he won. Yep. That was the answer, and he's the master of knowing. Sure. At the end of the day, it's the greatest victory in sport that I can recall for so many different reasons, but it was so powerful for him because of the people that he beat were the people that he's been trying to help in his absence. Yeah. And to know that he still had it at the greatest theater in golf on the greatest week of golf, which is this week, actually. Yep. Uh, it's the greatest moment that I can recall. It's so, yeah. so great. <clears throat> so I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit, and you talked about what you do on your podcast. Talk about a little bit about something that you had to learn from the hard way, brought you out of – something that uh you know wasn't as uh great a moment in life and uh, you had to learn from well there's many but i'll take i'm gonna pick a couple okay in 2010 nashville had a flood yeah it was a flood that was a thousand year flood were you still living it over here yeah yeah Mm -hmm. so we had 23 inches of rain in 42 hours yeah and i remember waking up on sunday morning knowing that I wasn't going to be teaching that day. And at this time, my kids are young, so like four and one and a half. And I used to wake up every morning and drive them around Riverwalk, the subdivision, just driving in my car yep. about five miles per hour, listening to some tunes. And yeah. So I remember when we did that, it was pouring. <clears throat> and I'm driving on the road, right by your brother's house, actually. Yep. And we're, we're headed up over the hill, and I'm seeing people running and kind of like hysteria, but I'm not paying too close attention to it yet. But I'm seeing like moms screaming, people running. I'm like, what the heck's going on? Here? Right. And as I drive a little bit further down the hill, I see that the river is now up into the second windows of the lowest homes at the bottom of Riverwalk. And I'm like, oh my God. So I, I try to play it cool and make a short left and head back to the house and the boys are kind of bummed like why we why that only lasted like a minute right and i realized that we were it was going to be pretty rough day something bad's happening so about mm, one o'clock all the neighbors came over and said hey man why don't you help us let us help get your stuff out of your your first floor of your home i'm like are you kidding me and the river is not even at my fence yet because but we have we think that it's going to get worse 
So we weren't even done taking half the things out of my basement or first floor. And it was all, the water had already risen so fast that it was in my house. We ended up with nine feet of water in the house. And another foot and a half, we'd lost everything. Because if it had gotten into the second floor, we were toast. Yeah. Um, about nine hours later, the Golf Academy at Gaylord was destroyed. So now I lost my house, and I've lost my job in nine hours. So I had about $295,000 in loss. And no way of making any money. It's a pretty harsh place to be. Yeah, for sure. Um, so my a, f- a friend of mine <clears throat> said, "Hey man, send me all your contacts. I'm gonna put the, we'll throw a party for you. We'll try to help you out." So he, we he I gave him all like 1,200 of my contacts, and then he has all his contacts, and he puts the, he throws this big party to help raise money. And <clears throat> Jeff Hunter, God bless you, buddy. I can't even thank you enough. It's kind of humbling. So he throws this party, and he has a Beatles cover band in his backyard. Starts at 7 o'clock. I keep in mind, my kids are really small at this point. So 7 o'clock, it starts. Nobody's there except his family and my family. 7.45, nobody's come. And my party's supposed to be from 7 to 9 or 6.30 to 9. Whatever. My kids are too tired to stay awake. <clears throat> It's about 8.15, and only one person has shown up to the party. And uh, it's the most embarrassed and humiliated I've ever been. Only one person showed up. So my kids leave, and I decide to stick around and kind of help clean up. And slowly but surely, 15 people, 30 people, 90 people. 150 people, the mayor. All of a sudden, it's now 11 o'clock at night, and it is the it is a packed house. And they raised $65,000 for me. And I'll never forget that because I, and in one moment, I went from feeling, well, first of all, I, got a, I lost my house and my job. Yeah. I'm, th- I'm throwing a party, and in the time window of which it's supposed to occur, one person shows up. And I'm when I thought that I couldn't reach a lower low, I had now reached a lower low. Right. All to be uplifted past any place that I have ever seen out of the human kindness and human spirit of others saved my butt. Yeah. And then, obviously, being able to teach golf at West Haven. It took a little bit of time, but I was able to go to West Haven. I stayed there for six years. And they also... Gave me a place to start teaching and build a, a an academy there too, and it was it was a great six year run for me. But that was arguable. Well, certainly, is the most challenging thing that I've ever had to go through by a mile. Right. Um, losing Brant was difficult because it was a business situation, and learning how to overcome. You know, doing your best for a very long time for somebody. Yeah. And it just being a business decision. Sure. To find another teacher. That wasn't easy either. It took me a longer time to overcome that. Yeah. Because I still couldn't figure out, like, well, what's the, I don't understand what the big deal is. I'm, he's saying the same thing I'm saying. Right. And so that was, that was challenging. And then losing your job when you didn't do anything wrong. Yeah. 
I think everybody, of course, right now, there's a lot of people that are, have lost their job yeah. right now. And uh, it's completely nothing to do with them. <laughs> I know. You know, for those people that are out there that are struggling right now, I would tell you that you just got to remember, it's just, it, this time will pass. And the more that you give in a moment where it seems like you should be getting, yep, the, it's going to come back to you. So even if you're struggling, to be able to go out and do something for somebody else will reap a benefit for you in the pay-it-forward department. That's what I've learned. It's like when I'm struggling, what can I give instead of what can I get? I think that's I think that's a great way to put it. I mean, we're we're in a situation that uh, we've never seen before. We're facing some weird times. I mean, you and I are sitting out here at Harpeth Valley Golf Center underneath the tent watching the driving range, and, you know, this has been a, a, a place of escape for a lot of people to get out and bang balls. And, yeah. You know, talk a little bit about how golf has played a role in that. You know, we talked a little bit about that the other day, but just give your thoughts about where we are in this kind of crazy world and how golf is playing a, a key role in that. Well, golf right now, thank goodness, yeah. is being recognized as an essential piece to life because it allows us exercise, allows us to be outside, and they, I believe the government's recognized the importance of that. Sure. But golf is generally played in a group of less than five. Mm -hmm. Ten's our number right now. So if we're out in a foursome and you keep your space, everybody's playing their own ball, playing their own golf clubs. There's no real, like, people aren't touching the same things. Yep. It's one of the last normal endeavors that if you're a golfer that are remaining at this point. Yep. Golf is never going to die because it is the last thing that I can think of in which you get to spend four hours with people that you like or love doing something that you like or love together. Yep. I wish more people would take it in that way, but I believe that that's what we're experiencing right now is that this is a activity. Yeah. It is outside, which is very good. And it's a challenging sport. Yep. And you get to experience the challenge and the beauty of nature with people that you like. Okay, so right now, if we're doing it the way we're supposed to be doing it, you're generally probably playing with your family, like I am. <laughs> I've played golf nearly every day with my boys. That's the greatest gift of them all. Like, so in some ways, the pandemic has been a tremendous gift because my kids would never get a chance to spend this much time with me at this time of year. Yeah, for sure. And it's matter at an age that's so important, 14 and 12. My son just had his 12th birthday. And we're out there doing things together that we'd never get a chance to do. While they're doing something they absolutely love to do more than anything. Yeah. And hopefully that is also doing that with me, which is really cool. There aren't many things left we get a chance to do that with. And it's one of the last normals. Mm-hmm remaining and i don't think it's gonna it's not gonna this disease is not gonna change the game it has the potential to change nfl and ncaa football because a hundred thousand people being shoulder to shoulder yeah that could change right um baseball the same basketball the same how is it going to affect the sports that we know and love going forward nascar indy car yeah that's all like that's all an unknown right now sure and we're and all of those things have been taken away. And yes, tour golf has been taken away too, and we're no longer sitting around the TV watching sporting events, which in some ways is good, and in some ways it's not because 
there aren't many things left in life that we watch on TV that are positive. Right. So in some ways, I, I don't, I mean, I know that we maybe glorify our sports heroes a little too much or sports teams well, in, a little too much. in sports, let's be honest, sports, we kind of gives us a break from all the craziness. <laughs> you and I can think completely different about a certain situation, but if we pull for the same team or, I mean, it, we're, we're all well, in it together, you know, exactly and so right. it's a, it's a, it's a gathering effect as opposed to so all this animosity so, and everything yeah. we got dealing with. And I think that's, that's, that's exactly right. And everybody's searching for common ground. Yeah. So when, when, you know, you're, I mean, you, you love the Tide, right? I hate the Tide, okay? I grew up a Penn State fan. Right. So Penn State's losses, essentially, from 78 to 85, usually had Alabama, Notre Dame, or Nebraska in it. Right. So I hate those three schools, <laughs> right? But it's weird because I don't hate Alabama. I just hate that they beat Penn State. Right. Okay? So I learned the difference. My first year at Mississippi State, I had I, I got a scholarship, and part of my duties was to work a football game. Yep. So of course I get the Alabama game, which is the least favorite game that I'd want to get because I want to be watching it. Right. And I got to be in the parking lot helping people park, and then I get the worst possible. I get visitor parking, <laughs> so not only I have to like miss the probably the first quarter. Yep. But I got to I got to park Alabama fan. Oh. <laughs> Well, in all actuality, I gained a great appreciation for the love that they have. Mm -hmm. And yes, they've Alabama's had an unprecedented run of greatness in a time in which there are no there are no such things because of how the scholarship situation has worked out in college football. That now it's kind of spread out so much to dominate as long as they have. Right. In the time that we're in right now, it's pretty remarkable. And all all hats off to Nick Saban for that. To be honest with you. Um. I find it fascinating how college sports are generally run by the coaches and professional yep. sports are run by the athletes. The coach makes a big difference. And oh, Nick Saban, sure. Nick Saban, I think that he probably goes down as the greatest coach of all time, even though I love Paterno and I respect the heck out of Bear Bryant and Tom Osborne and yeah. a handful of others. I think he might be the greatest coach of all time. I don't think anybody would argue with you, and I'm—I mean, I'm biased, obviously, but uh, yeah, I mean, you got two to—you got two know, to fight I mean, over. I mean, it's you just, got bare end. Well, neck. you know, I, <laughs> it's a funny story, but you know, I was born in Birmingham. My first name is Bryant, and I was born in the '70s. So you put the two of two together. <laughs> That's exactly right. My mom swears up and down that I was never ma- named after Bear Bryant, but I'm not going down with that one. <laughs> I, I cannot believe that one. What's amazing, you know, you know, both he. And Paterno, probably Tom Osborne as well, and yep. Wilkin, Wilkerson at uh, Oklahoma and you know Royal at Texas. That era of football was of a hard-nosed variety, different than it, the aerial assault that we play today. Yeah. But the amount of discipline that it takes to coach football then versus now, yep. the, I almost would call it delayed gratification football that they played then three yards in a cloud of dust, three yards in a cloud of dust. Okay. Now it's third and short. Now we got option. Yep. And then we get five and we keep going. We keep moving the chains. A lot different game back then. And like it was defense, offensive lines and have the best running back. Yeah. The quarterback wasn't really that, that big of a deal. It was like when I grew up, it was the beginning or actually the end of OJ Simpson. And then it was like Barry Sims, Barry Sanders, uh, 
the great running backs, Herschel Walker, Bo Jackson. Oh, yeah. And then all of a sudden it died. The running back position is almost like the center in basketball. Right. Dead. Yep. And I expect it to return, and we're kind of seeing a little bit of that with Derrick Henry and the Titans, which is the defenses are now so set up to stop four wide, and the and the defensive ends and the tackles are are designed to be fast, to get to the quarterback fast. Yep. That when they face a team that's got five hogs up front and a literal freight train like Derrick Henry, the defense is also runs like a four four. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I think it's so interesting. They've done all kinds of stats, right? So if Derrick Henry gets five full strides, his yards per carry is like 17 yards. Yeah. Like you can't stop him if he gets going. Mm -mm. So the key is to get to him before he gets his strides going because he's a big machine. But when it gets going, man, yeah, you don't want any part of that. No. And so it's interesting to watch how teams really struggled defending the Titans. Yep. And the team that ended up beating us beat us. Because we couldn't stop them in the new game. Right. Too much speed on the outside and an unbelievable quarterback in Patrick Mahomes. Yeah. We couldn't stop him. And that's where football's at right now. It's yeah. like the the geniuses are now in the offensive coordinating and spreading the field out and the timings yeah. of it all. And I guess the thing is so different now. Like now that the 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 genius is in the coordinators oh, and the sure. and the court and the quarterback that can deliver it mm-hmm. versus when it was when we were growing up it was like I mean you probably hated Herschel Walker as much as I did I mean you got like, ah here we go yeah. well I loved Bo Jackson I know that's shocking to hear but he was my favorite player to watch I mean greatest athlete unbelievable of, greatest athlete of our lifetime yeah I mean I just think. unreal how you doing on time we we gotta I know you gotta get going I got an eleven o'clock lesson but um let uh. I would I, before I let you go. We we got to talk. We, you got to give me my best dad story. I know you got one. He would he he's gonna hate me if I don't talk to you about about something you got. And I'm, I mean I don't get a lot of. Um, I mean I'm you know this may this may not be fun for anybody else, but it'll be fun for me. <laughs> so we used to we used to go to the back of the range at Gaylord. Yep. To hit balls, and he would be. The, he's a very interesting human being because he's very, very smart, and he's smart alecky. Yeah, simultaneously. Well put. Right. <laughs> so he'll be hitting shots, and when he starts to hit it good, his body language changes to like because he's always like when he wasn't because you know I started working with him he wasn't a very good player. He wanted to be a very good player. Sure. So when he was struggling, his attitude was, I'm going to get this, I'm going to get this, I'm going to get this. And as soon as he started to hit it good, yep. he was like, I can beat anybody in the world. <laughs> no <laughs> doubt. No doubt. I can beat anybody in the world. No. Bring it. And then the golf gods heard him. Steven, did you say that you have it now? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I used to do that to him on a on a on a weekly basis. He would get so mad. I'm like, buddy, you just got your butt whipped by this game. Yep. Because you verbalized you had it. Yeah. I got it. Yep. This is it. No, golf gods are gonna smack you down to the dirt. No doubt. And it broke him a little bit. Yeah. You know, the game 
I don't think he was really good at, he probably is now, at that time, he wasn't really good at his best effort and his best mental and physical input couldn't overcome the difficulty of the game to the point where he thought he could attain it. Right. And a lot of people struggle with that part of the game, which is, how could I have it and then it disappear again? But it's not so much about winning or always winning or always playing great. It's all about, like, the journey of what it takes yep. and knowing that you have it and figuring out how after you lost it to get it back again. And sometimes that drives people literally bananas. For sure. And it drove your dad bananas. I'm glad he's back playing again because I think that he thought that he could perfect it. And when he found out that he couldn't, he's like, well, then why am I doing this? Yeah. And then he he learned how to love the game. Yeah. And that's what I love for him. Your dad is one of my favorite people to be around because uh, he's so different. He's Everything that comes out of his mouth, he's thought about, but he's he's willing to say it because he's different. Yeah. And it gets it catches you a little off guard, and sometimes – his way takes people back, but he's a breath of fresh air to me. Yeah. Because he, he sees life from a very different view, and I love that yeah. about him. And But I do I do love the fact that he would hit like 10 shots in a row perfect, start feeling himself, and then he'd hit a shot fatter than fat, yeah. and it would send him off the rails. <laughs> <laughs> it was so much fun. Another thing I love about your dad. Is he introduced me to rose champagne? Your dad loves oh, yeah. rose champagne. Oh yeah. And I went to his house one night for a uh, for a dinner and he opened up some remarkable Dom uh rose. And I'd never had it before. And yep. it was it was fantastic. And that's something I'll definitely appreciate your dad because he definitely it's something I love, which yep. is wine, and the understanding of it. And he he passed on a love of his to yep. me. And it was uh, it's a gift that he, he gave me, and I'm thankful for that. Yeah. Well, we uh, we ran out of time, or this one, we would probably go on forever. I know you got well, less. We can have part two. I know. <laughs> and, and that's the love of this. We can always sit, because I'm certainly sure that we didn't talk about anything or uh, we talked about a lot, but we didn't get we didn't get to everything we can talk about. And I was going to get your opinion about just you know our industry and some of the things that you've come across, and and that. So we'll have to do that again next time. Well, yeah, because like one of the things that I want to discuss with you, I love I'm, another thing. I'm I'm pretty well versed in is golf course architecture. Yeah, and the understanding of how the game doesn't need to go eight thousand yards to become difficult and challenging for the Absolutely. best players. Um. So let's let's get together again for like a part two, and we can discuss. Uh, course conditions, how a golf course can be set up so that it's not doesn't need to be eight thousand yards for challenge sure. to people, and uh, and just a whole other envelope of <laughs> oh we got goods. Well, uh, tell everybody where you can they can get the book, where they can follow you, uh, all that good stuff, and I'll share that with uh, my my audience, and uh, we'll push this thing out. I have a lot of mediums. Okay, so on, on my website is virgilherringgolf.com. Yep. Or virgilherring.com. They, they have two different websites that people can go to. My podcast is available on iTunes, and they're basically everywhere except Spotify, uh, on The Verge. That's easy to get on. That's easy to get on. Uh, number 
for my social media, I'm virgil.herring on Instagram, at virgiltorspin on Twitter. Uh, you can find me on the Golf Channel. Just look me up. Just look up Virgil Herring on the Golf Channel. You yeah. see all my videos there. And if you want to get a golf lesson uh, and experience what it's like uh, to get a golf lesson for me, my number is 615-579-5190. And, or my email address is Virgil Herring, the number one, Virgil Herring one at iCloud.com. Awesome. Well, that was a lot of information, but that's good. Uh, I, one of the things that I did, I wanted, I, I'm kind of a techie guy. I want to dive into the track man too next oh, time. Oh, yeah. Just get all into the numbers and really bore the crap out of people. <laughs> but, man, I, this was a lot of fun. The, the hour and a so went by fast. Appreciate you doing it and My sitting down with man. me, and I look forward to uh, doing, a, part, doing two. part two. Excellent, so, buddy. We'll appreciate see you again it. next time. Thank man. you. All right, man. Until next time, everybody, that's it. Virgil Herring, go check him out. Appreciate you sitting down with me, man. I'll, well, uh, Until next time, I'll talk to you soon. <laughs>